The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Uh, we're going to speak on the cross of Christ, so I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to Matthew the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27, and our study in the past few weeks has been in the closing part of this book where we are dealing with the crucifixion, and we're now into the most agonizing part of Christ's sufferings as our Lord was plunged into three hours of midnight darkness. Bible commentators have said that the death of Jesus was much unlike many of the martyrs that died for him. A few years ago, I read the story of uh, Lady Jane Grey, who was a very remarkable young English girl who was a pawn in the power struggle for the English throne. And she was a very devout Christian, and uh, because that she refused to submit to the Roman Catholic Church, she was beheaded. And like Jesus, her execution was very public, but there were people that regretted the fact that she had to die. Even the man that accused her of heresy and was there at the trial was the one who said that she needed to die. He was very sorrowful that she did because he saw her bravery. You may probably be more familiar with the first martyr, and that was Stephen. We find him in Scripture, and Stephen died under a hail of stones, but his death was a glorious death, and that's because he looked up into heaven, and there he saw heaven opened, and he saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God in power and in glory. But Jesus' death did not appear to be glorious in any way. There were no angels that appeared when Jesus died, not like at his birth that lit up the sky. There were no angels that, had, that proclaimed that now redemption has been accomplished. There were no rays of sunshine that came down and enveloped his body. There was no halo over his head. There was no strange aura around his body. But when Jesus died, the entire world was shrouded in darkness. There was no glorious light, but there was the darkness of doom. It was black, and it was ominous, and it was fearsome. And when he atoned for sin, there was no one who looked on him. The darkness was, was so deep as he suffered those last agonizing hours of his life that he was completely alone. Even his father would not look at him. He was rejected, he was smitten, he was outcast, and he died with what many thought was a helpless cry of defeat. But it wasn't a cry of defeat, and we are going to see in the next message that Jesus did everything that he intended to do on the cross. That he did everything the Father gave him to do. He finished his work. Well, these verses are all about the last three hours of his life, his Death was shrouded in darkness, and that was a symbol of God's judgment that's poured out on sin. Matthew describes it to us here in the 27th chapter in verse number 45. I'll let you sit as we read today. He said, from, uh, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Now in our study of the crucifixion, we've seen the interaction of many different individuals. You remember that Jesus was scourged and he was taken outside of the city to a place that was called Golgotha. That's the place of the execution. There were soldiers and high religious officials that followed him out of the city. There was a man by the name of Simon that was ordered to pick up Jesus' cross and carry it there. Then there was a crowd that was present that demanded his death. As they were there in the process of the crucifixion, there were people that wandered by and stood there and watched it as it took place. There were two thieves that were crucified beside Jesus on either side of him. But as we come to these verses in, in this part of the chapter, for these three hours, all of the attention is turned to this one particular person, one individual. All of the attention goes to the middle cross and the focus is one man who is a man of more scorn than even those two terrible thieves that were crucified with him. We probably wouldn't even have heard of those thieves if it wasn't for the salvation of one of them. They would have been no more than just a, an afterthought to the story, perhaps not even mentioned. And now we see that every backstory that takes place fades away into the intensity of the sufferings of Christ on the cross. And when we reach verse number 45, it's 12 o'clock noon, and Jesus has already been on the cross for three hours. He was nailed and lifted up about 9 o'clock in the morning. And as he was, there were many snide remarks that were made. There were mockers that kept shouting out, of, out at him. And probably after a little while, that may have subsided somewhat. The crowd calmed a bit. The initial shouts were probably very energetic, but those probably became a little bit tiresome. Standing there in the hot sun nearing the middle of the day, maybe that wore them down just a bit. But then suddenly, when the sun was at its apex in the sky, and abruptly without warning, what God did was to flip the switch and he shut out the lights of the universe. And then began this awful, eerie darkness that Matthew describes. It's the period of darkness. Verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. The sixth hour, that's noon as they counted time. At twelve o'clock it was dark and for three hours they couldn't trace the movement of the sun across the sky. And I suppose that those three hours felt like a much longer time because no one had ever seen anything like this before. Nothing like this ever happened before. And we know that the darkness was real because years later when Mark wrote this about this and Luke wrote about it, there was no one that disputed their accounts. And, and if Matthew's gospel was written early, as the traditional date suggests, then there were plenty of people that were alive that could have said, well, no, that never happened. There was no darkness like that. But we don't find that anybody ever disputes the records that Matthew, Mark, and Luke gave about this terrible darkness that came on when Jesus was crucified. Surely somebody would have said, that is a terrible inaccuracy, and the reason that you said that is you're trying to prove that Jesus is truly God. No one ever said that. 
Because there were people that knew the account was accurate. That they knew that this actually did happen. And so rather than to just accept that it happened, they started to make up stories and natural means by which the darkness could have happened. Uh, we talked about some of those theories last week and we discovered that none of them fit. This had to be an act of the super, uh, supernatural act of the sovereign God. That's the only way that you can account for the darkness. What God did was to adjust the laws of physics. He suspended all natural laws in the universe in order that the sufferings of Christ could not be seen by the eyes of a mob that had no ability to comprehend it anyway. In fact, there's not really any of us that understands exactly what happened there. Now, I know there are many people that think that they can explain the crucifixion and they can explain these three hours and what took place between the Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. But there's really none of us that's capable of getting into the mind of God to see what was going on between those two. Now, we're given a small glimpse in order to accommodate our understanding just a little ways. But we don't understand too much, but we do understand some things that God has told us about it. Other scriptures do give us some idea of what was intended by that darkness. So secondly, we talked about last week the purpose of the darkness. And we have some good hints in scripture as to the meaning of it. In John chapter 3, Jesus said that men love darkness rather than light. And in Genesis, it says that darkness is horror. Joel and Amos wrote that God's day of wrath or God's day of judgment is a day of darkness. And so we put those things together and we begin to understand that the darkness, the purpose of that, it's a combination of sin and the horror of God's judgment against sin. And the Bible is teaching us that a day of judgment is coming where those who are without Christ are going to be cast into hell, which the Bible calls outer darkness. Now the darkness of the cross was just a picture of how God treats sin. And it was a very fearsome warning that those that crucified Christ were not going to escape without God's vengeance. And it's also a warning to people today that they will fare no better if they do not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no hope for anyone that dies without Christ. But there's much more to this story than what happens to unbelievers. Oh, I could talk to you more about what happens to unbelievers, but this is more about the relationship between God and His Son and what He did for the benefit of those who are believers. Now, if unbelievers are all that this is about, then there wouldn't have been a cross. There wouldn't have been any darkness. There wouldn't have been a death. This is what God did to Christ for believers. And that's the real story of the cross. And you need to understand that because this is extremely important. Christ's death was for believers. He made no atonement for those that die in unbelief. And this is what it took for us to be forgiven of our sins, to have justice satisfied, in order that we might not have to take the pain of hell ourselves. The purpose of the cross was to satisfy justice, not to provide a hypothetical salvation for unbelievers. Now I want, you to, I want to show you show you in the rest of the message today, what did Jesus go through in order to save us from the destruction of hell? So thirdly, we're going to look now at the plea in the darkness. 
In the midst of the darkness, there was an astounding cry that was heard from the cross. As Jesus neared the end of those three hours, when it was still dark, this impassioned, haunting cry came from him. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Now those are words that are a mixture of two languages. Eli, Eli, that's Hebrew. And then Jesus switched to Aramaic, which was the language of his childhood. And he said, lama sabachthani. At first he spoke in the language of the temple as he said, Eli, Eli. And then in Aramaic, Lama Sabachthani, that's the language of the common people. Oh, there's so much power in those few words that they constitute one of the greatest mysteries of all things that are in the Bible. Martin Luther, as I've told you before, that great student of the Reformation, he studied this passage with profound interest, and he was so perplexed by it as he was sitting there writing his commentary about it that he just got up from his desk and he stepped away in exasperation and he just said, what can this mean? God forsaking God. And on the surface of that, we can decipher what it means. We know what words mean. And in the following verses, Matthew explained for us what the phrase was about. But we can take that, that sentence, and we can split it into its parts, and we can look at the grammatical structure of it, and we can look at the verb, and we see that word forsake, and you and I know what the word forsake means. We know how terrible it is for a husband to forsake his wife. And we know what it's like for a mother to forsake her children. I mean, we've all seen this kind of abandonment too many times in our lives. We understand what it means to forsake. But as we look at this particular word, it's much deeper than human relationships. We don't really get to the depth of this word because what we have here is the eternal Son of God who is rejected by the eternal God, the Father. And we get a sense of the, of the uniqueness of the problem here as we examine the normal way that Jesus spoke to God. Did you know that before Jesus came, that there were no Jews that ever called God their father? In the Old Testament, God is called father 14 times. But never did an individual Israelite call God his father. It wasn't until Jesus came that he began to teach and, and preach and to pray constantly using this term that God is his Father. And the Jews were upset about that because they didn't speak that way. And they knew that when Jesus called God his Father, that he was claiming a relationship that they didn't have. Well, Jesus was not bashful to tell them whose children they were. They were... Or they had a spiritual father, but it wasn't God. He said, your father is the devil. So he was not going to dispute with them and tell them, well, you need to change your terms because God wasn't their father. But Jesus was different. He was different. And he said that he was the one who could reveal that God is the father. And that's why until he came, there was nobody in the Old Testament times that ever called God the father. Jesus commented on this very problem in Matthew eleven twenty seven. He said, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. 
Now, if you need a verse on the particular electing grace of God, the words of Jesus are about the best that you can find. Oh, the teachings of Jesus are just full of references about God the Father. And it was just uncommon for anybody else to say those things. But when Jesus began to teach to the disciples, he showed this, uh, them this amazing truth that because they had a relationship with him, they could also begin to call God their Father. Now, I've given you that information to make a point that Jesus could have referred to God as God any time that he wanted. And as one person said, even for just stylistic points, he could have mixed and matched his references every now and then just to call him God. But we see that in all the cries from the cross and in all the times that Jesus prayed, he never did that. Not until this time did he alter the way that he spoke. And you have to think that that is just supremely important. Why did he do this? Well, it's because in this moment... The relationship between him and God the Father was severed. In this moment, he could not call him Father because he was forsaken. He was no longer a son to the Father because he had become something that was terribly inconsistent with all that the Father is. He had the curse of sin on him. Sin's dregs were poured out all over him. He was drenched in the odious filth of the worst kinds of evil. The worst things that you could ever think of. The worst that any person has done in all the annals of history was poured out on Jesus and Jesus was soaked to the bone with the sins of mankind. Oh, God is too high and holy to look on that. He couldn't embrace him. He couldn't comfort him. He, he couldn't pour out his love on him while he was cursed with sin. This cry that came from the cross is a loathsome cry because in that split second, it seemed to confirm what the mockers had been saying. They said, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, See, he, seeing he delighted in him. But there's no delight. Not while he's made sin. Oh, they thought he was so brazen to call God Father. And now it's very clear that this Father that he claims has abandoned him. And so they just began to mock that cry. And that's what the next part is. They begin to mock the cry as he cries out to God. And I'm not going to spend too much time arguing about whether they truly misunderstood what his intent was. Did they really think that he was calling out for Elijah? Did they really think when he said, Ailey, Ailey, which is a part of Elijah's name, which means, my God is Jehovah. Did they really think that that's who he was calling for? Did they think that he was just following what Jews would normally do when they were in trouble? Because they did believe that when they were in time, they were in times of serious problems that Elijah would come. If they called Elijah's name, that he would come and he would deliver them. But regardless of whether they understood that or not, we do know that something very profound was going on between the Almighty God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's because theirs is an eternal relationship. Before time, before eternity, from eternity, the relationship was there. But now that paternal relationship is discarded. Jesus did not call Him Father. He's not the Son now, but rather He is the object of divine justice. And I don't know how you wrap your head around that. 
Luther couldn't do it. Here is Jesus. He's there because of sin. He's a human being that has sin charged against him. And for that, God could do nothing other than to judge him, condemn him, and leave him abandoned to die. You're never going to get the full impact of that. You can, you can enjoy the results of it. But like Luther, you're just not going to get, ha to get what happened between God the Father and God the Son in those three hours of darkness. Well, was there real confusion? I don't know. Verse 47 might just be more of their cruel mocking. Matthew gave the interpretation so we know what the intent of Jesus' words were. But in any case... When he said those agonizing words, there was someone that hoisted up a sponge that was filled with vinegar. Now that vinegar was actually a sour wine that they drank. And it was a diluted, very diluted wine. Why did they give that to him? Was that to quench his thirst? Well, it's unlikely that they were going to do anything to help him. If anything, that was a way to revive him just a bit because they thought he might be dying a little bit too quickly. And what they wanted to do is just kind of perk him up so he could endure more pain. Now let me talk to you a little bit about that for just a few minutes. Let's talk about the pain. The pain of the darkness. Now in this three hours, Jesus was plunged into a whole different dimension of pain. Before it's the beatings, it was the scourging with a whip that was tipped with metal and bone. Before it was a crown of long thorns that was pressed to his head. It was a, a reed that was used to strike him on the head. It was nails that were driven through the tops of his feet and then through his wrist. There was all this terrible suffering going on. His bare back that was against that rough cross with, that was splintered and every time that he tried to move, just shift a little bit, the splinters would gouge into his back. But this pain is much different. Oh, there's lots of people that had gone through the horrible tortures of a crucifixion. But what no one had ever experienced is what Jesus went through in these three hours. No one has ever seen the kind of suffering of those three hours because here we find very intense spiritual suffering. And have you ever noticed, have you, as you've read this story, that Jesus went through all of the physical stuff he went through all of the physical torture and everything, the emotional humiliation that was there, and he never even said a word. You notice that? He never said a word. And the Bible says that. He, he never cried out. He never said a word. He took all of that, all the physical stuff, the emotional stuff. But then when it came to this, this is what made him turn loose of his cry. It was when that darkness came, and it was clear that the Father had left him abandoned to die. And that was spiritual suffering, a kind that we'll never know. Now let's look at that first part. The first, uh, that first of all, spiritual. It is spiritual suffering. The worst part of the suffering is the grief of mind, the agony of the soul. It's the suffering of the spirit. Now you think about the most physical pain that you've ever been through. I mentioned those martyrs at the beginning. How did those people make it through? How did those martyrs ever held on to their faith in God? How did they get through the worst tortures? I mean, having their bodies burned at the stake, they were stoned, there were all kinds of inventive ways that they killed people. Jorge told me this morning, he's reading Fox's Book of Martyrs. There are just all kinds of ways that they killed, killed people that believed in Jesus Christ. But what did those martyrs trust in? What was it that gave them their strength? How were they able to go through all of that? 
Wasn't it this? That they knew that God was with them? Isn't that what kept them going? They knew that God was with them? That's actually the strength of their martyrdom. We have a song about that. From, it actually comes from Isaiah chapter 41, verse number 10. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed. For I am thy God. I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my gracious, omnipotent hand. And didn't the psalmist also say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Those words have comforted countless Christians through the centuries. But was Jesus able to sing that song I quoted? Was Jesus able to quote the words of Psalm 23? God was not with him. God had forsaken him. God left him alone. And did you know this? If you are his child, that you are never going to feel that kind of abandonment? That'll never happen to you if you're one of God's children? Never is it going to happen. God says, your mother might forsake you. And your father might forsake you. But he says, I am never going to forsake you. But God never said that to Jesus. The spiritual weight was crushing on him because Jesus had no support. And you might say something like this, Oh, well, you can crush my body, but you can't crush my spirit. And when those three hours, Jesus cared nothing at all about the body. It was the spirit that was being crushed. And then next, his pain was scriptural. In those hours that he was on the cross, Jesus' mind was saturated with the scriptures. His... His comment to God was taken directly from the psalm. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's why there's probably no reason to believe that they made a mistake about what he was saying. Because he was quoting the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. And that's why they twisted what he said. You continue reading Psalm 22. And you see the sufferings of Christ are perfectly outlined. In the seventh and eighth verses, it says, All they that laugh me, all that they, they that see me, laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, singing delighted in him. Verse 15 goes on to speak of his thirst. And in the other accounts, Jesus said, I thirst. Verse 16 says, They pierced his hands and his feet. And verse 18 says, They gambled over his garments. Jesus was there to fulfill the scriptures. God put him there, and Jesus voluntarily went there knowing exactly what the Scriptures had to say of what would happen at the cross. Now thirdly, it was substantial. It was real. The darkness is a better indicator of the reality than the physical suffering. Oh, we know the nails were real. We know that there were two men next to him who had their hands and their feet nailed to a cross. Golgotha is the place of the skull. I mean, that's the common place of execution. All kinds of crucifixions went on there. So we needn't argue about this. Was there any physical torture involved? So what is it that makes the death of Jesus different? Well, it's the eternal relationship problem. It's this otherworldly cosmic difficulty of God versus God. Darkness descended in the middle of the day and judgment fell because this is God against God. This is not judgment for crimes that he had done though. This is God's eternal judgment on sins that are so many that only God could ever rid us of them. 
No judgment of God on men could ever match this. Nothing could be more substantial than this. The pain had to be more intense than any other pain. Fourthly, it was strange. And maybe that's an odd way of putting it, but it was a very strange pain. Who could ever believe this? Have you ever known God to treat his children this way? Have you ever seen God do this in Scripture? If you love him and and you serve him, do you expect that God is going to repay you in this way? That he will desert you? That he will totally abandon you? That he will forsake you? He'll leave you to die without any comfort? Now, we're not talking about a weak servant here. We're not talking about a Christian that needs some correction. This is not a Christian that needs a little bit of chastisement, a little discipline to get him back on the straight and narrow path. We're talking about somebody who is the perfect son of God. This is perfection that's hanging on the cross. There was never even a reason for a cross word between the son and the father. Jesus was undeserving of having this massive weight that was dropped on him. And so can you think of anything that's a stranger pain that is inflicted on the least deserving of all? It was so strange. And yet there's this thick black darkness where Jesus looks more hopeless than his soul could ever look. Then fifthly, the pain was severe. And at this point, that's a gross understatement. There, there isn't actually a word that captures the significance of it. How do you measure a rupture between God and God? How does that, how does that work? What, what does that look like? Well, I guess it looks like this. It actually looks like something that you can't see. It's too dark to see, both mentally and physically. This is too dark for us. I mean, there are so many puzzling things about this. How did God even hold the universe together when cosmic forces are in a spat? How did he keep the the universe from dividing, from totally dissolving when he turned, when God turns his back on God? When it happens, it must look something like this, like sun, moon, stars, galaxies, planets, everything is completely shut out, everything gone to dark. What do we expect when God deals with God? We get a taste of the residual effects, but what happened in that dimension that we don't understand? What happened between God and God? Perhaps it gives us a little idea of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed and sweat great drops of blood. There he said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Why? Why was his soul sorrowful unto death? Was it the thought of nails? Was it whips? And thorns, was it because people were going to spit on him? No, it was this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He never shrunk back from the physical. Cursing, mocking, betrayal, none of that moved him. It was this, separation from the Father. And the anticipation of that separation was, was too severe, and so that rejection caused him to cry out. Someone said to me after a message a few weeks ago, this person said, I would gladly take his suffering if I could. And you know the cross really ought to make us melt with that kind of compassion? It should. But none of us would ever think of that. Would ever think of taking his suffering if he had not already done it for us. Now if we were allowed to 
even take one ounce of his suffering, did you know that all of our compassion would be shifted to self? If we just took one ounce of his suffering? And do you see this in verse number 44? There are two thieves that go through the very same thing that Jesus went through. And do they have compassion? No. They're in the same kind of suffering. The thieves also were crucified with him and they cast the same in his teeth. The suffering that he went through, you could never match. Eternity in hell cannot match this. Because Jesus' pain was so severe that it was enough to match infinite suffering. The reason that you escape hell is because of it. He left nothing to be done. And so it's a nice thought that we would say that we would take his pain, but you would never want any of his suffering. Because if you took the smallest part of his suffering, did you know that that would leave the world without a Savior? It'd leave the world without a payment for sin. Well, we're not done with this passage, but I, but I do need to finish for now. But I want to talk to you about just this one last part of the pain, and that is that it was substitutionary. It was pain that was in the place of. Well, Jesus wasn't there for anything that he did. We've been through too much ex exposition of the death of Christ to miss this, so I'm not going to take you back through the mock trials and through Judas' admission of it, and Pilate's and his wife's and the thieves that Jesus was innocent. We've hammered that repeatedly. He wasn't there for himself. There was a transference that took place here. God would not crucify him without a cause. See, God's always just. He, he, he's not going to hang Jesus on the cross for no reason. That would never match his justice. Listen to his question again. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now that's framed as a question, but didn't he know the answer to this? Well, for sure he knew the answer to it. The question is actually rhetorical. God had forsaken him. He knew why. He said back in the 20th chapter that he was going to give his life a ransom for many. And what is that? He meant that I'm going to pay a redemption price and that redemption price is going to deliver my people from the bondage of sin. And so Jesus hung there on the cross as a corresponding payment for actual transgressions that are made against God. The cross is the place where Jesus placated the wrath of God by satisfying his justice. And the reason that God poured out wrath on him is stated in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now there's the problem. He was made sin. Not sin in the actual commission of it. He was made a sin offering. He was made flesh. He took on human flesh and became a sin offering and was treated as a sinner would be treated. And so he became a sinner by transference, or if you want to use the biblical term, that would be imputation. And it's not as if there was this mass, indeterminate amount of sin that was just suddenly dumped on him. This is, this is not like scooping up a mass of sin and dumping it on him. That, that wouldn't even make sense because this is personal. This is about personal offenses of people. And so it was personal offenses that were transferred to Christ. Somebody committed those sins. And because God is always perfect in his justice, he can never let sin go unpunished. 
One day all the crimes of the universe are going to come before God and the vast majority of those crimes, whether you understand it or not or believe it or not, the vast majority of crimes are left unsettled. They haven't been settled. That, you'll get that in a minute. The vast majority of crimes have not been settled. You go back to the Garden of Eden and Cain's sin of killing Abel and, and the sins of Noah's time that caused the flood and Israel in the wilderness to, to the judges, to the kings, to the scribes, to the Pharisees, to Pilate, to the thieves, to tyrants, to Hitler, to Russian communists, to Americans, to Obama. There is a lot of, a lot of sins that have not been settled. And somebody's going to have to pay for those sins. And so you see Jesus on the cross... Who is he dying for? I don't have time for a theology lesson on the atonement today, but I'll tell you this. He couldn't have died for anybody in hell. And that's because he was a substitute. He satisfied a penalty. And nobody that has their penalty will ever satisfy, will ever be in hell. He was there to satisfy God and to take that penalty away so God could not make Jesus an offering for sin and say... To you, oh, I'm sorry, he paid for sin, but you have to pay for it too. And so if there are people in hell that Jesus died for, then his offering is no good. The price that was paid was not high enough because something still needs to be added to it to make it work. Now, do you get the picture? Christ suffered alone. Do you get the picture that the darkness was a matter between Jesus and the Father? Where does anything that you do figure in to what happened between Jesus and the Father? Where is there a scripture in the Bible that says that you can complete the payment that Jesus made on the cross, but you have to dot, a T, or dot an I and you have to cross a T in order for that to happen? Now I'm telling you folks that redemption is an eternal contract between the Father and the Son. It's a contract where they agreed. The Father said, you die for them. The ones that you die for, I'm going to be satisfied and I'll save them. And if you have a plan that says, oh, but you got to add X, Y, and Z and then you'll be saved, then you don't understand the darkness. You don't understand what happened in three hours of darkness between Jesus and the Father. You see, true substitution could never admit that there is a failure of redemption for anyone for whom the substitute died. Redemption is a price, pay, price paid, and you'll never find anything in the Scriptures about it being a hypothetical price. And so do you know why it's necessary to have a substitute? Do you know why that you could never do this yourself? Have you ever heard this? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your mind, all of your soul and your neighbor as yourself. Do you know what that is? That is the compilation of every command in the Bible. That is a sum of all commands gathered up from every book in the Bible. And you notice the Bible says that you have to do with all your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. God demands that kind of perfection and you are never going to do it. And because you can't do it, God allowed a substitute to do it for you. There was only one person qualified to do that and that was Jesus. And the law says either you do it perfectly or a perfect substitute has to do it for you. So either God is satisfied with what's done 
or he's not satisfied at all. And I would submit to you that God was satisfied. This was the time for God to take that sin offering and to wring everything out of it, all the punishment that was necessary to pay for all the sins that were intended to be paid for. And God is never going to discard that sacrifice and shut out of heaven those for whom it was made. Well, I need to stop there. There's another part that I want to get to. Verse number 50 says that he gave up the ghost. We need to deal with that. Verses 51 through 54 talk about the aftermath of the darkness and what happened when his life was expired. I want to talk to you about those verses too. But it's time to stop. And so today I want you to think about darkness. There was just so much light when Jesus came. Angels lit up the sky when he came. When his birth was announced, heaven opened up, the glory of God was seen. In his ministry, there was radiance, there was brilliance everywhere that he went. But then there was the cross. And Jesus suffered God's rejection, and when he did, the lights went out. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was because of his people. It was because Jesus died to save his people. And as harsh as that darkness was, he was willing to go through it. Remember that. Remember that. That there is a light that brightly shines now because that darkness was so deep and Jesus went through it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with wonder and amazement, a subject that is far too deep for us to even scratch the surface of it. What happened between you, you and your son what happened in those three hours? We, there's no way that we can delve the depths of that. We are so thankful for the results of it. So thankful that Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for sins and that you were satisfied for the sins of everyone that puts their faith in you. Lord, we thank you for that. I ask you to speak to some heart today. Make them understand the sacrifice was made. And, Lord, I pray that they would come, that person would come to faith in you realizing it. And for those of us who are Christians here today, help us to just be so thankful that the light has shined on us and that you showed us the beauty of Jesus Christ and what it is to believe in him. Speak to our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.